Aren't relationships great when they work, when everything is okay? But let's be real this morning, can we? Aren't relationships fickle, amen? Amen. They're fickle. You're in grade school and you have a best bud, whether you're a guy or a gal, and you do every, you're joined at the hips in grade school and you, you do everything together until that new kid comes into that classroom and all of a sudden your best bud now is joined at the hip with the other kid. And you go, what's going on? You're in high school. You've fallen in love. You have found the person that makes your heart pitter-patter. And you'd say, man, it's just a matter of time before this person becomes my mate. I'm just going to bide my time and do all the right things. And then one of you goes off to college, and shortly thereafter, dear John, I have found, well, let's just put it this way. I think we need to cool it and uh, date other people. You thought it was going to last. And I don't mean to bring up pain this morning needlessly, but some of you have stood in a place like this before God and a crowd of witnesses, and you have pledged yourself to another for eternity. As long as you both shall live and you say, this is it. I'm going to invest myself in this person and this thing is going to last and I'm going to work hard to see it happen and within three, seven, ten, thirty, your mate comes to you and says, I don't love you anymore. The pain. The destruction, the, the, the anguish that you feel that you can't even put into words. And you'd say, relationships, they're fickle. They don't last. And then we take that thinking and we, we come to God. And because our other relationships haven't all worked, we, we wonder, God, how, how's it with you and me? I'm in church this morning. I'm listening to the preacher. I'm engaged. But I am, am I really doing enough to maintain this relationship? Or will you someday say to me, because everyone else in my life has, I don't love you like I once did. 
And I think often many of us struggle at times in our walk, the spiritual walk, because we've been hurt in other relationships and this walk with Christ, first and foremost, is a relationship. It's, it's not a religion. It's not doing all the right things. It is his heart and my heart beating as one. But I know my heart, and you know yours, and you wonder, um, God... Am I going to do something so terrible, so despicable, so unworthy that this relationship, I'm going to jeopardize it because I know the fickleness of my own heart. And do you know the fickleness of your heart? Yes. See, I've struggled with this before. Early in my walk with Christ, I wondered what else do I need to do? How can I show him I love him? And then I would would see the own sin in my life and say, has God's love for me lessened? Have I jeopardized it again? Oh, man, I, I, I willfully sin this time. God, 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 I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Is that enough? And you wonder. You wonder. See, I think at times all of us feel insecure in relationships, including our relationship with God. Amen? Amen? Let's just admit it. We struggle. I want us to go to a passage this morning that I pray will become bedrock for your life. That the truth will shore up this thought of my relationship with God and where is it? So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 31, page 1201, there in the Pew Bible. And we are continuing our series on God's priceless promises. And in the passage this morning, I I think there are three promises, not just one, that I hope you latch on to this morning. Because Paul is going to talk about our security as believers in Jesus Christ. Let me give you the background. In the book of Romans, Paul has written this beautiful book, laying out the depravity of humanity in chapters 1 to 3. He then goes on in verse, chapter 3, verse 21, to talk about justification by grace through faith. And then in chapter 6, he talks about sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Huge, major themes. And then in verse 30, he, he gives us this passage and he talks about what God starts, he will finish. 
We've been predestined, called, justified, glorified. And those that he starts with predestined and called and justified, they will be glorified. He doesn't lose anyone in the process. The passage we're going to look at this morning breaks down into two halves in a sense. Verses 31 to 34 and verses 35 to 39. And as I read verses 31 to 34, I want you to listen for legal terms that are there in the text. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding, For us. We'll stop the reading there. In these four verses, there is this heavenly courtroom scene being played out. The sinner is on the witness stand, and he or she is being grilled by the prosecuting attorney who happens to be Satan. He brings charges, he brings charges against us. But God acts on our behalf. In the passage, it talks about justify, condemn, to plead, or intercede. In verses 31 to 32, to fill in the blank there in your outline, God will withhold nothing in taking care of us. God will withhold nothing in taking care of us. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Either that refers to what I said earlier, the depravity, humanity, the justification by grace through faith, sanctification by the Holy Spirit, or he's referring also to verse 30, those that he predestined, called, justified, glorified. What shall we say to these things? What what Paul is asking us to say is, hallelujah! Hallelujah! I can't believe this, but it's true. He then goes on in verse 31 to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, when we see the word if, we often think it's conditional. If this happens, then this happens. Well, there's different classes of if statements in the scriptures. And if you go back to the original language, which I'm not going to bore you with, there are other ways of translating the word if. For example, I'm getting ready to go out and buy some milk. We're low on milk. We're getting low, dear. And that's my job. No, it's my job to get the milk. And Barb says, as I'm heading towards the door, if you're going to the store, would you pick up some bananas, please? Now, that's if. Now, is that a conditional statement? No. 
Another way of saying it is, since you are going to the store, add bananas to your list. The same construction is found in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a conditional statement, folks. It can be translated, since we confess our sins. <laughs> He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in the passage here, if God is forced, I mean, is there a question? No, it should be almost translated, since God is for us, or because God is for us. This is the key to our security. God is for you. Well, three people got excited about that. God is for you, amen? amen? He's for us. Is it conditional? No. No. God is on your team, amen? amen? I don't know what you're facing this morning. Matter of fact, you know, I've never really quoted John Calvin. I'm not a strong proponent of John Calvin. You've learned that. But this one phrase was John Calvin's life first. Since God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on your team, can anyone else vanquish you? No. God is for you. God will withhold nothing in taking care of you. And then to kind of give us further logic to it he says in verse 32 God who did not spare his own son and do you hear in that the Abraham and Isaac story found in Genesis 22 Abraham did not spare Isaac God the Father did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greatest thing to the lesser thing. Lou Jax is building a new building out on 53rd. They're going to move their, their high-quality vehicles up there. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to play a what-if. Let's say to celebrate their new grand opening they're going to have you sign up to win a brand new Mercedes, because that's one of the things they sell at this new location. A brand new Mercedes, amen? Will we all sign up? And let's say they chose my name, and it was broadcast, and Brian Spitzer won the new Mercedes and I go into the dealership and they congratulate me and I, and I see the new detailed fresh smell the leather and they said oh but we're not going to give you the keys what? 
You, know, you committed to this community that you're going to give away this vehicle. And you're not going to give me the keys? No. If God has given you his very best, his one and only son, everything else pales in comparison to that, doesn't it? If he's going to give you the very best of the best, will he not give you all the rest that you need? That's right. He will give you he will withhold nothing in taking care of us. Amen? God is for you. Those aren't my words. Those aren't some motivational speaker here this morning. It is God's word. God is for us. In verse 33 and 34, which we have read to fill in your blank there, God will allow nothing to condemn us. God will allow nothing to condemn us. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God, God's elect? Here's our struggle, I think. Do you sometimes hear the condemnation of the enemy in your own thinking and he says, God, look at your child there. They again did this that they know is against your will. And they did it willfully. See, I think the struggle is the condemnation has great elements of truth to it, doesn't it? They're right. The voices in our heads of condemnation, they're, they're right. They've seen us. We have sinned. But it says in 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Oh, here's the answer. It is God who justifies. It is God who declares us righteous. It is God who imputes upon us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ which means the charges won't stick. Yes, it is true, I sinned, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Yes, it's true, but God the judge declares me not guilty. And God throws Satan's accusations out of court because God has declared us righteous. Can I earn my righteousness? No. Can I pay enough? Can I say I'm sorry enough? The answer is no. Can I come to the judge and say I don't deserve it, but you provide it? Declared righteous. And in these verses 33 and 34, Paul highlights four great Christian doctrines as he tells us his answer. Who is it to condemn? And the answer implied in the text is no one. And how do we know that? Because 
Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Four great Christian doctrines are A, substitution. Jesus Christ died in each of our places. That's called substitution. Secondly, resurrection. Resurrection. It says more than that, he was raised. What does that mean? When Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, God said your sacrifice was sufficient for what you came to do. And I'm now bringing you back to heaven. Now think about this. If there was one sin, only one sin, that Jesus did not pay the price for, could he be taken back up into heaven? No, because sin cannot survive in heaven. It's holy, it's perfect. And Jesus paid the price for all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future. And resurrection tells us it was done perfectly. Thirdly, accession. Now I put that in your outline because you might think ascension is, is the word. It's not, it's accession. And we, it says, who is at the right hand of the Father? We don't have royalty in the United States, but in England, they talk all about accession. Who is next for the throne? Who is next that's going to take power and control of the royal family? In this case, the son who died in our place, who was resurrected to say that what he did was perfect, God now elevates and says, I want you to sit at my right hand, the hand of authority and power and privilege. Fourthly, intercession. Intercession. Who indeed is interceding for us. Can you pick up right there? That's present tense. It's present tense. Right now, as you are here in this place, the Son of God is at the right hand of the Father of the royal, universal throne. And he's saying, strengthen my children. He is mentioning you by name to the Father. Who's going to condemn See, the judge at this point, because of substitution, resurrection, accession, and intercession, the judge pronounces case dismissed. Oh, but I still sin. I think you do too. Is that relationship fickled? No, at least judicially it's not. But he goes on in verses 35 to 39 to talk about the fact there is no separation because of Christ's love for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of us should say at this point, Amen. See, in 35... There's a list, seven things, present trials. Well, here's the reality to fill in your blank. Life is difficult, amen? I cleaned it up. Life stinks. Life is hard. And in this list, notice how it progressively gets increasingly intense. Tribulation, trouble, Distress, hardship, persecution, famine, a lack of clothing, danger, or death. Here's the reality, though. Present trials and suffering are no indication that God has withdrawn his love from us. Let me say that again. Present trials and suffering are no indication that God has withdrawn his love from us. Now, how do I know that? It's really simple. Look at Jesus. Did the Father's love for his beloved Son ever waver one bit? No. Did he go through the hardship of life? Yes. Only once do we hear as he's on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? But he had laid the sin of the world upon the sinless one. And the Father couldn't stand to watch that experience. But he still was loved. So life is hard, life is difficult. But secondly, hardship has always been the experience of the faithful. Verse 36. Hardship has always been the experience of the faithful. In verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. And this passage here refers to those who face daily persecution. But they themselves have been faithful, as it is written. For your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Are you experiencing hardship this morning? You you may be, you may not be. If you're not, enjoy the respite. Because all of us hit hard times in life. Amen? Amen? All of us. 
But it is not God withdrawing his love from us. It is just part of this thing called living in a sinful world under the power of the enemy. And we will go through hardship. But in 37, Paul says, no, in all these things, in all these hard, hard situations, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, God's power. Now, now how big is God's power? I put in your notes, omnipotence, unlimited. God's power is working on our behalf. Therefore, we are, according to this verse, super conquerors. It says we are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors. And here's what blew me away as I studied the passage. This too is present tense. So it doesn't mean next year or when I get to heaven, I'm going to be a super conqueror. No, right now. Right now. And I don't know what hardship you are going through, but because of the love of God and his power working in and through you, you are a super conqueror. Now, do you feel like that right now? Some of you, I know what the answer is. No way. Our feelings don't always match truth. Amen? And where we get into trouble is we try to live by our feelings. Just give me another jolt of coffee in the morning and let me get up and be perky. No, truth is truth. Feelings are feelings. Don't let them mix. 38 and 39, God will allow nothing to separate us from his love. God will allow nothing to separate us from his love. For I am sure, Paul says, I stand convinced that neither death, now wait a minute, that's pretty final, Scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you take me out, you kill me, guess what? I see Jesus face to face. Okay, let's let's dial it down then. Then I'm sure that neither life, the circumstances of life, the dailiness of life, the difficulty of life, angels... Rulers here talks about demonic powers. Things present, things happening right now, or things that might happen in the future. Powers, height nor depth. One commentator talked about extremes in space. Nothing overhead, nothing underneath can swoop down or swoop up and upset my walk with the Savior. And if those nine were not enough, he says, nor anything else in all creation. There are some denominations, you come to this verse and come to this phrase and say, yes, 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 that's true, but there's one person that can take me and separate me from God's love. You know who that is? 
that's me. Now, where is that in the text? Am I not anything else in all creation? Or am I so special that I can undo God's sovereign plan for me? I don't think so. Nothing, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bottom line, all and underline the word all, are powerless to reverse the believer's eternal destiny. All. All are powerless. What does this mean for us? I'm going to make it simple this morning. One thing. I'm going to repeat this a couple times. This is not a big idea. This is an application point. No matter your circumstances in life, we are to take comfort in the fact that we are secure in Christ now and eternally. I'll repeat that. No matter your circumstances in life, I don't know where you are this morning, we are to take comfort in the fact not in our feelings, that we are secure in Christ now and eternally. Let me explain that. We're in a race. You know, we've read in the scriptures, we're in this race, a marathon called Life in Christ. And here's the starting blocks for the race. Okay, Who brought me to the starting block of the Christian life? What's the answer? Well, Holy Spirit, God, though they both would be acceptable this morning. Who brings me to the starting block? God does. Who helps me understand my need for a Savior by the name of Jesus Christ? Who does that? God does. Who helps me understand that and to the point where I then say to God, I need you, Jesus, please save me. Whose job is that? God. I'm I'm making it real simple this morning. God. Who helps me understand that I'm now in a race and who now coaches me the first few steps in my walk with Christ as a new believer in him. Who does that? God. And as I'm now running the marathon called the Christian life, who encourages me along the way to stay in the race till the very end? Who does that? Okay. God, 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 God. Then, now my question is, I'm running the race. This is true for some of you. It used to be true for me. Why do I keep looking back at the starting line to say, now really did I take off in this race properly? Did I meet all the qualifications? Did I I start at the starter's gun? Did I do all the right things? And maybe I need to go back to the starting line. And Okay, God, starter's pistol one more time. Okay, now let me start again and I'll start the Christian life. 
Some of you keep going back to your initial salvation experience and wonder, did I do it right? Who did all the things to get me to the blocks and to start me off in the first place? Who did that? God. Was it all of God? Yes. Okay, so how can I flub that if it's all of God? I don't know. Then stop looking back to the starting line and saying, I need to, I, okay, I, I could lose it. I could disqualify myself. You can't disqualify yourself from running the race for salvation. You can disqualify yourself for the rewards at the finish line. We'll talk about that someday soon. But you're all in the race. If you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin, you're in the marathon. Stop looking at the start line. And would you begin in a fresh way to start looking at the finish line? That's where we're headed. God is for us. Amen? He will take care of you. Secondly, through Christ, we are super conquerors. Amen? Some of you don't believe that because you're under the pile today. Thirdly, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Therefore, endure suffering. Endure trials. There will come a day for each one of us where we will see the victory in Christ. We will see that someday. And in heaven, being super conquerors, is present tense. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. Now, life is hard. There's struggle along the path. We need each other to encourage one another. We don't need to say to brothers or sisters in Christ, oh, it's no big thing. Yeah, your kids are giving you fits. It's no big thing. Until you have your own kids and you realize it keeps you up at night. Let's be real with one another. Let's encourage each other. Let's pray for each other. Let's understand that sometimes all of us stumble and fall on the path of this race. Amen? We do. And, and we have to learn to lift each other up and encourage each other. Not condemn one another, because all of us are sinners saved by grace. Amen? Amen. All of us. Let's pray.